0: Uh, So we're back in Romans, and as Neil's already said, I want to uh, be sure to thank Frank, who stepped in at short notice last week. We we plan our preaching, it's it's never less than a month in advance, quite often it's months in advance, so whenever a preacher gets three or four days' notice because somebody's ill, that's that's a moment. I I always feel the discomfort of that, but Frank, being frank, just stepped in and did a great job. So we're grateful to Frank. He, he dealt with the first 11 verses of chapter five for us. Whenever you're in a long book like Romans, uh, and particularly when there's a, a rich and a complex argument being developed, it's important to keep reminding yourself of the journey so far. So I wanna keep trying to do that for a few moments every time I'm preaching for you in this letter to Romans. In this letter, Paul explains and defends the gospel to a Christian community that he did not found. Paul did not found the church in Rome. He'd neither founded it nor visited it. He's introducing himself, therefore, to these believers in Rome with a view to enlisting them. He wants them to be supporters of his next evangelistic campaign in the Western Mediterranean. Paul wants to visit Rome and use it as a springboard for a missionary endeavor to Spain. And to accomplish this purpose, he he writes this carefully argued letter, which is all about the gospel. In the opening verses, he introduces himself as an apostle set apart for the gospel. He announces his plans to bring that good news or that gospel to Rome He does that in the early verses of chapter 1. He tells his readers why he's so committed to the gospel, chapter 1, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And why does the gospel have such power? Because, Paul explains, it reveals God's justifying activity. And all who respond to that activity in faith become just before God, chapter 1, verse 17. So this teaching about justification by faith, so basic to Paul's gospel, it's been the theme really of the first four chapters of Romans, the first major section of the letter. To explain why God has manifested this new justifying activity and why it can be experienced only through grace, Paul shows us that all people rebelled against God and that all are helpless under the power of sin and are under God's wrath. They're unable to do anything to escape from God's impartial judgment. That's really the theme of the first three chapters. But then expanding on chapter 1 verse 17, Paul shows us how God's sacrifice of his son has enabled him both to rescue people from this dilemma and to do it without violating his own holy justice. Again, Paul stresses that this new relationship with God is available only for those who believe. It can't be attained by works or by circumcision or by the law. We can summarize the the teaching of the first three chapters by saying that we're justified by grace on God's part, through faith on our part, and at a great cost, the life of Jesus Christ, God's son. This is Paul's one gospel. There is no other. As I said when I introduced the book a couple of months ago, Paul expects this one gospel to make a difference in the church in rome he expects the one gospel to make one people because the church in rome isn't one people when he writes it's a divided church divided between jew and gentile paul wants to see one people in that city of rome the revelation of a righteousness from god you see erases the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. Jew and Gentile alike are under the power of sin. Jew and Gentile alike are justified by faith. In our passage this evening, the one Neil read for us a moment ago, Paul paints with broad brushstrokes a bird's eye view of the history of Redemption. His canvas is human history and the scope is universal. So he's not talking very much in this passage about Jews and Gentiles, but about human beings. All people, Paul says, stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the entire destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteousness or his obedience. The actions of Adam and Christ are similar in that they're both representative, they have representative significance, but they're dissimilar because they're not equal in power. Christ's act is able completely to overcome the effects of Adam's. Anyone who receives the gift that God offers in Christ finds security and joy knowing that the reign of sin and death has been completely and finally overcome by the reign of grace, righteousness, and eternal life. That summary of Paul's teaching in our passage is straightforward enough. What is less straightforward is Paul's teaching in this passage. I don't know if you got that as we read it. Perhaps you noticed how difficult Paul's argument is at times. The argument of the paragraph proceeds in a disjointed kind of a way. So Paul begins chapter 12 or sorry, chapter 5, 12a, verse 12a, with a comparison, just as, but he doesn't complete his comparison. Instead, he becomes involved in expanding the first part of his comparison, the sin of Adam. He does that in verses 12 to 14. At the end of verse 14, when he tells us that Adam is a pattern of the one to come or a type of Christ, as the theologians might put it, Paul hints at his completed comparison. But before he actually goes on to state the comparison definitively, he shows us a series of contrasts between Adam and Christ, verses 15 to 17. Finally then, in two roughly parallel statements in verses 18 to 19, the full comparison is made. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man many will be made righteous. So, What have we done so far? We've recapped quickly in the argument of Romans so far. I've given you a a summary of what our passage is about, and I've shown you the somewhat complex way in which Paul makes his argument for us. Let me give you quickly an idea of how we're going to spend our time together. We're going to go deeper on one key aspect of this passage, hopefully the key concept in the passage the idea that because of christ's obedience we have a righteousness we we might say that this is an exercise in systematic theology some people are cheering because they love their systematic theology so we're going to go deeper for a few moments then we're going to go wider with this idea of our identification with adam And Paul's idea that Jesus is the second Adam. We might say that this is an exercise in biblical theology as we scan across much of the Bible. And then finally, after going deeper and wider, we're going to go bigger. We're going to learn that no matter how much sin there is in our lives and in this world, it'll never outrun God's grace. His mercy is more. Okay, so first of all, we go deeper. So far in Romans, we've seen this centrality of justification by faith to Paul's gospel. I preached from it on it in chapter three at the end of November. Neil preached it in chapter four in December. Frank preached it in the first half of chapter five last week. Justification by faith is absolutely central in Paul's argument here in Rome, it's absolutely central to Paul's one gospel that makes us the one people of God. But let's go a little bit deeper on justification by faith this evening. Justification by faith we've seen so far, God uses to cancel our unrighteousness. That is, it takes away something that's negative. Perhaps that's the main way in which you think about it. But it's also the imputation of Christ's righteousness to me. That is the giving of something positive. You see, I don't have a righteousness that commends me to God. In Philippians 3, Paul makes this clear when he says that his claim before God is not Having a righteousness of my own, that which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Any righteousness that we have is Christ's righteousness. That means Christ fulfilled all righteousness perfectly. And that when I trusted in him, that righteousness was reckoned mine. I was counted righteous. God looked at Christ's perfect righteousness and declared me to be righteous with the righteousness of Christ. Whenever Paul started preaching like this, it naturally raised a question for people. Isn't that abominable? For a God who calls himself a righteous judge to justify ungodly people, how can that be righteous? How can that be just? Isn't that abominable? No, says Paul, for two reasons. First of all, the death of Christ paid the debt for our unrighteousness. Because of his death, we are not any longer unrighteous. But secondly, the obedience of Christ provided a righteousness for us, the righteousness that we need to be justified in God's court. You see, God's demands for us to enter into eternal life with him are not only that our unrighteousness be canceled, that we reach some sort of a, a neutral standing with him. This, but but that a perfect righteousness be given to us and be established for us. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ is the basis for both. That's what I want you to see here this evening. That's what I mean by going deeper. Christ's suffering is the suffering that our unrighteousness deserved he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities that much we know i think but his suffering and death is also the climax and the completion of the obedience that becomes the basis for our justification he was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and his death is the pinnacle This is what Paul means when he says in our passage, verse 19, through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. When John Piper writes on the subject of imputation, he talks about how Christ's death became the basis for our pardon and our perfection. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. The imputation works in both directions. What does it mean that God made the sinless Christ to be sin? It means that our sin was imputed to him he becomes our pardon. What does it mean that we who are sinners become the righteousness of God in Christ? It means similarly that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and thus he becomes our perfection. Isn't that just glorious? Don't you just want to celebrate Jesus who loved you and died for you? He's not only won our pardon, but he's provided our perfection. Let's love him and admire him and treasure him and trust him for all that he's done for us on the cross. So we've gone deeper. This evening in this passage as we've seen Paul describe the work of Jesus Christ in terms of imputation the imputation of our sin onto Jesus and of Jesus righteousness unto us but there's more to be said about what Paul's done here and to leave it would be to miss a, a wonderful aspect of Paul's method the way in which he talks about Christ's work he talks about Jesus as the new Adam. As well as going deeper, we're going to go wider. If we step back now and zoom back from this passage, place it into its full biblical context, we get a wonderful picture of how Christ's work of imputation is going to lead to our transformation. I want to think about this with you for a couple of moments. Ever since Adam and Eve fell from grace, God has, as it were, been searching for his man in the world. Someone after his own heart. Someone whom he could entrust with the power that he had always intended human beings to have over creation. That's what he wanted for Adam. That's what he wanted for humanity, to bring order and harmony and beauty into the world to restrain and defeat the powers of darkness and chaos that threatened to return the world to its pre-created state there were some promising candidates along the way the the meandering history of the old testament introduces us to some of them but none of them finally proved up to the task Somehow, and, and you'll know this if you've ever tried reading God's Word, it's, it's long and it's frustrating to read through that whole Old Testament, but somehow the waiting is part of the point. The long years and centuries of waiting, they they enhance the grandeur of the answer when it finally comes. When Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem, when he walks the roads and the fields of Galilee, God finally has his man in the world. Think for a moment about Jesus' miracles. Mostly we think of them the wrong way, I think. They are theologically significant in ways that are often lost on us. You see, they're not impressive tricks to try and persuade skeptical cynics to believe in him, they're signs to point to who he are, who he is. There's signs that tell us here at last is God's man in the world, someone to whom God can entrust power. Jesus walked on lakes and he calmed storms. He subdued water. What do you know about water in the Bible? Water is the symbol of chaos and destruction, the primordial symbol of chaos and destruction. And that's why in his vision of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, John tells us that there was no longer any sea. Jesus Christ has power over the waters, over the sea. Jesus produces bread from stone. He feeds the hungry with meager resources, miracles that remind us that our God is a God not of of want, but a God of plenty. He heals the sick because our God's stronger than illness. He raises the dead to demonstrate that our God has power even over the grave. As he walked on our earth, Jesus Christ used his power to do what God himself would do. That's all he was doing. He was being God. He was doing the things that God would do if he walked among us because he was God walking among us. It's as if God couldn't entrust that kind of a power to any human being because they would abuse it. For the most part, for all of us, power corrupts. But for Jesus Christ, power was his birthright. He used it for God's glory. We've seen here in our passage this evening that Paul is comfortable comparing Jesus somehow to Adam If it were the only passage in God's word where Paul did that, we might make less of it, but it's not. In 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about the resurrection from the dead, he says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. When Paul describes Jesus in Colossians 1, as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, he's telling us that for him, Jesus is the second Adam, but the one who perfectly reflects the image of God. He's the one who does what Adam was intended to do. So Jesus Christ is for us a picture of perfect divinity. He shows us what God is like. We know that but he's also a picture of perfect humanity. He shows us what God always intended a human being to be. He's a man, fully human in every way. Now here's where this gets interesting for us. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, indwelt by his spirit, are those who are in Christ. We're called to grow in his likeness. Paul will tell us later in Romans chapter 8 that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. and. 1 Corinthians 15, he'll say it even more clearly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that is Adam, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, that is Jesus. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. Where the first Adam failed to bring the image of God to bear on the world, Jesus Christ did and Jesus longs now for that image to be restored in us, those who trust in him. Do you see now how this imputation leads to transformation? Because the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection, the gift in the spirit are all now freely available in Christ. Those who become followers of Christ are meant to be Transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit 2 Corinthians 3:18 Folks, Christians aren't just saved. They're transformed. They're not just indebted to Jesus. They're becoming like Jesus. In Romans, we're thinking about the one gospel that creates one people. The purpose of the gospel then is not just to save a few people for heaven. It's to create a new kind of person, ready to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. The promise given in the New Testament isn't that we're going to be whisked away to some kind of ghostly paradise, leaving this world behind. It's ultimately the promise of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth indwelt by renewed people with the image of God restored in them through Christ and the Spirit dwelling in them. C.S. Lewis once put it like this. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man here at hamilton road we say that our purpose is to make faithful followers of jesus christ but maybe we don't make it clear enough to people what that means it's not a church goer or a presbyterian or even a particularly committed member of Hamilton Road who comes to our services and our gatherings. A faithful follower of Jesus Christ is someone who's allowing God by His Spirit to transform them. That's the point of God's dealings with us. God forgives and rescues sinners precisely so that He can turn them into people who resemble Jesus Christ. Who share in his image, who are participating in his nature. God's purpose is to transform us into people who are capable of fulfilling our calling to rule over creation in his name. I don't know if you know that. Where to rule with him. Read the end of Revelation sometime. I'll be looking at it with the guys in book by book this evening. I I was blown away by the number of times in that book we're told that we're made to rule with him. If you don't know that, you don't know what your calling is. You don't know what God created you for. You don't know what you're being restored to. We're to rule with him. And if that terrifies us, that's good then we come to him and ask for more of his spirit more of his mercy more of his grace in our lives but we've got to be prepared to rule with him in a book on christian discipleship anglican bishop graham tomlin compares the church to a gym i don't know much about gyms so i'll have to take his word for this He says that the gym helps people with their physical fitness and he says that if the church is to help people with their uh, he says that the church is to help people with their physical fitness tomlin says that just as the fitness industry has a very clear idea of the kind of bodies we're supposed to have an ideal to strive for I, i don't know i'm gonna guess here i guess that if you go to a gym website or go into a gym there are posters fit looking people. Is that right? Is that, is that how gyms work? You, the idea is that you look at the poster and you go, one day I will look like that. If I get, get on the treadmill, if I lift the weights, one day I will look like that. I think that's how it's supposed to work. So if you want to operate a gym, you've got to show people what it is that they're working towards. Tomlin's point. He says that just as the fitness industry has a very clear idea of the kind of bodies we're supposed to have, an ideal to strive for, Christians have or should have a very clear idea of spiritual perfection, spiritual fitness. To be spiritually fit is to be like Jesus. It means to become more fully human, and to become more like God. Can you hold those things together? If you're becoming more like Jesus, you're becoming more fully human, and at the same time, more fully God. That's our theology. That's our culture We've gone deeper in this passage as we've thought about imputation and about how Jesus' death not only provides for our pardon, but also for our perfection. We've gone wider in this passage and we've seen how Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded where the first Adam failed and he's restoring the image of God in humanity as he puts his own spirit into us, those who've trusted in him. For a last couple of moments only, I want us to go bigger. To see that God's grace is bigger. Look at the closing verses of the chapter. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul hasn't been talking very much about law in this chapter five here, but let's notice his earlier reference in this passage. He says, verse 13, sin was in the world before the law was given. Then he tells us, verse 20, the law was brought in so the trespass might increase. It's not an easy argument But it goes something like this. Adam introduced sin and gave its power, gave it power in the world. And the giving of the law, when it finally came through Moses, hasn't improved that situation. In fact, it's made things worse. Because with the law in place, human sin is now deliberate rebellion against the revealed, detailed will of God. As Paul says, when the law is in place, the trespass increases, sin increases. Sin is getting bigger. The more we open ourselves to seeing God's law, the more we come to understand God and his His purity, his beauty, his holiness, the more our sin and the sin of the world weighs down on us, the bigger it gets to be. Friends, that's true but it's not the gospel. Look at what Paul says, verse 20. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There's a lot of sin around. Maybe you feel it in the world, in this church, in your heart. There's a lot of sin around, but it's simply dwarfed, dwarfed by the grace of God. No matter what sins we have committed in the past, no matter what sin you're living in tonight, no matter what sin you will commit in the future, they're small news compared by the monumental grace of God. God's grace is bigger and his mercy is more. Praise God. Deeper, wider, bigger. Where do we go to look for everything that we've talked about here this evening in this passage? Look at our closing verse. There we see the name of the one who brings us from the reign of sin and death to the reign of grace and life. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look back to last week's passage and notice the closing verse there, verse 11. Paul says that we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we've thought about this evening is sandwiched between these namings of Jesus Christ. Every benefit that God wants to share with us is only in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's pardoned our sin. He's perfected us. He's renewing us in his image. And he's ensuring that our sin, big as it is, will never stand in his way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all these blessings of the gospel that are piling up as we read our way through this wonderful book of Romans. Thank you that Jesus' death won our pardon. It took our sin out of the equation. But thank you, Lord, that it also won our perfection his righteousness was given to us when you look on us we are every bit as beautiful to you as your son we don't believe that we can't hardly believe that lord we ask your help to believe it Help us to understand this evening how beautiful we are in your eyes because of Jesus. And Lord, we've seen this evening that you want to transform us. You want to renew the image that's been broken, that's been tarnished, that's hidden away. You want to Restore us. You want to renew your image in us. You want to, to put us before a watching world so that people can see Jesus. Lord, please do it. That above all is what we long for. And Lord, we thank you that that even our sin will never stand in your way. Our sin, no matter how much of it there is. Your mercy, your grace is bigger. Your mercy is more.